And thank you so much for joining us today for our event entitled Sanctions in Medical Education, the Case of Iran. I'm Nargis Bajokli, an Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies at Saiz Johns Hopkins University. Today's event is a part of our Rethinking Iran initiative, which has launched uh, 13 reports from an array of international scholars looking at the impact of sanctions on Iran. These reports stem from our project at SAIS entitled Iran Under Sanctions, which has been the first comprehensive look at US sanctions on Iran, studying the impact of sanctions on Iran's economy, energy, environment, uh, social, political, and cultural sectors. For today's event, we're featuring the work of two scholars and experts who have written on the impact of sanctions on medical education and infrastructure more broadly in Iran, Professor Orki Debehuzan and Taro Sepehibad. They'll be in conversation with Professor Omar Dawashi. U.S. sanctions have impacted not only access to medicine, but also healthcare education in Iran, resulting in infrastructural, cultural, and pedagogical changes. Physician and anthropologist Orkide Behuzan and Human Rights Watch researcher Tara Sepehifad have written a report for the Iran Under Sanctions Project on the impact of sanctions on medical education and these broader infrastructural issues in Iran. Before I introduce our speakers for today, I'd like to invite all of you in the audience to ask your questions throughout the event in our chat box on YouTube, and our team will pose those questions to our speaker to our speakers during the uh, latter half of the event uh, during the audience Q&A section. Our speakers for today's event include Orki Debehuzan, who's a physician, medical anthropologist, anthropologist of science and technology, and the author of the book, Prozac Diaries, Psychiatry and Generational Memory in Iran, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2016. She's the founder of the Beyond Trauma Initiative and a bilingual author and poet in Persian and English. She's a professor at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Tara Sepehibad is a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, where she investigates human rights abuses in Iran and Kuwait. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, she was the Deputy Director of the Human Rights and Iran Unit at the City University of New York, where she worked on a project supporting the mandate of the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Iran. Tara graduated from the Sharif University of Technology in Tehran and holds an MA and LLM degrees in international law from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Omar Dawashi, who will be moderating today's event, is trained in medicine, public health, and anthropology, and his work examines the social, medical, and environmental impacts of decades of war and violence in Iraq and the broader Middle East. His award-winning book, Ungovernable Life, Mandatory Medicine and Statecraft in Iraq, which won the New Millennium Book Prize in 2019, documents the untold history of the rise and fall of state medicine in Iraq, the unmaking of infrastructure, and the exodus of the country's expert doctors under decades of US-led wars, sanctions, and occupation. He's currently working on a book manuscript uh, entitled When Wounds Travel, Ecologies of War East of the Mediterranean, which chronicles close to 10 years of ethnographic research and public health practice in the Middle East. Working towards an anthropology of wounds and wounding, the study explores the different registers of the wound as its entanglements in the thickness of social relations of vulnerability and care and the broader political and environmental ecologies of war. 
More specifically, it documents the widespread of conflict-related injuries, multi-drug resistant bacteria, and the reconfigurations of healthcare and humanitarian geographies in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon under decades of protracted conflicts. Dawashi is the author of numerous publications that have appeared in medical, anthropological, and global health journals, including The Lancet. And just more broadly, these are three people that I'm constantly le learning from, and I hope um, you all will enjoy this conversation over the next hour um, as, as much as I intend to. So without further ado, I hand over the floor or the mic, so to speak, to Omar Dawashi. Thank you very much for uh, having me uh, as part of this really critical and important conversation on uh, uh, sanctions in Iran and specifically the, the effect on uh, healthcare and health, uh, medical education. And I think this is going to be a very uh, important kind of broader conversation on uh, sanctions in general. That is what I'm hoping to, uh, to have and kind of to bring in our audience into some of the experiences that are uh, that are documented brilliantly by our uh, two uh, scholars who wrote this, I think, very incredible report, uh, which I think is a beginning of a broader uh, project, uh, looking at at the uh, uh, both the the uh, the direct and the indirect uh, impacts of sanctions in Iran. So. Uh, one of the things uh, that I have I have found in my own uh, work, which which really uh, uh, keeps returning back to the question um, of the periods of the sanction with Iraq, which what we call in Iraq al-Hisar, um, is to think about the present uh, unmaking of the Iraqi state. Iraq has probably been under one of the most uh, comprehensive uh, economic sanction systems. Um, uh, that almost like 12, 13 years uh, during the 1990s, that the impact of uh, these uh, sanctions had been have been really far-reaching and uh, irreversible. Um, uh, so, so, so I, I find this conversation to be very useful and productive, especially in comparing to also neighboring countries, Iraq and Iran, and their experiences. Uh, with uh, the kind of the different modes of sanctions and different kind of uh, politics of sanctions. And in reaction to that, how these uh, sanctions have been impacting the healthcare system, healthcare infrastructure, and specifically looking at, I think what the uh, authors really uh, highlight is looking at the, the impact on medical education, something that often um, uh, not really, not doesn't come to the immediacy of thinking about the kind of the broader impacts of the sanctions. So uh, well, I, I'd like to, uh, I guess, uh, since this is going to be a more of a conversation, I'll be uh, posing some questions and uh, hoping that you know we, these questions will just uh, uh, start some uh, some kind of a, a discussion on some of these issues, and I'm hoping that this could be partly. Not very very formal, uh, but but we can we can constantly go back and forth and thinking about the paper, but also thinking about the broader implications of this work uh, on understanding the sanctions in general and their long term effects and long long term implications. So uh, my first uh, my first uh, question, first of all, thank you so much for having me, and 
and and I'm very honored and pleased to be part of this conversation again. Um, I, my first question is to the two uh, to the the authors of the report is can you uh, give us a little bit of an overview of of the the, the research that you you've conducted uh, what really uh, driven you to focus on medical education specifically and um, and how did you conduct this research. Uh, and uh, and I guess uh, the kind of the third part of this question is if you can actually give us a little bit of an overview of the main findings uh, of this report. So I, I, I turn the mic uh, to you both. Maybe I can start and then have Orkida um, explain more about the research. And the issue started with actually Orchidea and I discussing what we wanted to write about. We knew we wanted to write about the impact of sanction on healthcare in general, but we didn't have a very specific topic in mind. At Human Rights Watch, I have looked, in, uh, looked at the impact of sanctions on access to healthcare. And the way I looked at it is very much uh, the causal relationship of finding the exact policy, examining the humanitarian exemption that exists in the text of US sanctions, seeing if they're effective in allowing medicine or, or medical equipment into Iran or not. But this is not the question we're looking at. The way, as we were discussing it, we realized that we were, we were interested in understanding the experience of people living under sanction as opposed to a legal analysis of the sanction or, or, or the, um, the narrowly focused causal dichotomy of our sanctions um, in having a negative impact or not. And in looking at that question, we realized um, doctors are, 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 are particularly located, are located in a very particular place in the society. They are the ones as part of the society impacted by the general implication of sanctions and their livelihood, their education, their perception. And at the same time, they are, they are the ones performing a very critical role in terms of access to healthcare. In that sense, um, if we consider patients at the end point of, of healthcare, well, they receive the accumulated impact. Um, um, healthcare professionals, doctors are, are in, a, in a different perspective. They, they are impacted and they are, in, they are causing impact as well. And that kind of draw us into looking at the question of impact on med medical education itself, a question that was less explored. Um, and, and I stop here letting Orchida take it from there. But I thought it was really interesting, the conversation Orchida and I had in order to come up with the topic alone um, taught us a lot about the question we were going to explore. Uh, thank you, Tarajan. Um, thank you, Nagis and Saiz for having us for this wonderful event and making this project possible and for Omar for engaging with um, our preliminary report. Um, I just follow up on what uh, Tara said that in, uh, when, uh, when we were thinking about the topic, one of the things that's at least personally very important for me was to, to, to look at something also that wasn't about immediate crisis, but also about long-term effects. And in, the interest in the long-term and the afterlife is something, a place where different areas of my work converge and an interest in pedagogy in general. And as Tara said, both medical doctors and also education are, are, are areas where um, some of the most uh, palpable 
issues of day-to-day um, -day life in relation to um, sanctions and other forms of um, other, other restrictions are experienced. Um, and the, this emphasis on shortages and access to medication um, has all, you know, the, the, this was also a, respon a response to that. Um, on the other hand, we, we also um, uh, had some idea of um, how things, as the anthropologists like to say, are complicated and complex and not, you know, this idea of sanctions being responsible for all ills and sanctions scape, being scapegoated for like a, for a lot of issues that, you know, we all know are extremely complex and rooted in, uh, in domestic and international um, conditions. So we wanted to also shed some light, light on that. And, um, and in terms of the findings, so we, we basically interviewed um, uh, colleagues, uh, medical educators, as well as um, medical trainees in Iran. And, um, and of course, some of this um, was also put in a historical perspective because medical education um, turns out has changed a lot since the 90s when I was a medical student in Iran. And, and all of that reform that medical education has gone through in part can be also seen as a response to both sanctions and international developments uh, in medical education. And so we were interested in uh, delving into that. And some of the themes that emerged in conversations included a sense of isolation from the international community, uh, also the international knowledge community and, and medical community, uh, restrictions on travel, restrictions on access to um, um, material, online material, journals, um, conferences, um, um, and, and sources, resources that are increasingly becoming, uh, in fact, software-based and online. Um, but then there were tricky moments where people were like, well, actually, we don't know whether we can't have access to X, this platform or that resource, because of sanctions or because of censorship, because those sites are blocked, for example. So that gives you an idea of the complexity and, and, um, and, and lack of consensus over um, uh, causality, really. Um, people also um, reflected on issues of brain drain, which is directly related to uh, medical education. And I can talk about that a little bit um, later. Um, and of course, the demise of the middle class in general, which medical doctors are presumably uh, part of, uh, is part and parcel of this conversation. As Tara said, doctors are experiencing sanctions as citizens, as well as, you know, as medical doctors, medical educators or trainees. And uh, we realized that a lot of this comes out in moments of decision making, whether it is clinical decision making, decision making in relation to research, and also personal decisions, such as the one I mentioned, um, whether to stay in Iran or not, or how to um, make ends meet, et cetera, et cetera. And, that, and the developmental stage um, where it, of life where residents, medical trainees are in is also important because these are um, people who are also embarking on careers that increasingly seem to have um, uh, not such a bright you know, prospect, um, so to speak. Um, so I'll just stop there and, and we can come back to some of these themes. Thank you so much. This is this was really very very helpful. Um, so so I'd like to come back to some of the points and maybe kind of dissect some of the the three key uh, areas that uh, that you guys highlight in the report. Uh, so um, 
the impact on training uh, you've written uh, has one of these kind of comes at these three axes. And I really appreciate Tara's comment that the kind of this idea of the dual role of the doctor, both as a citizen experiencing uh, the sanctions, but also as a as a kind of a figure located at the at, to deal with the kind of the immediate impact of the sanction, responding almost to this to this uh, what you know uh, uh, a scholar uh, Joy Gordon had called an invisible war. I mean, the, the, one one could see sanctions as a form of an invisible war uh, against these different societies, what we've seen in Cuba, what we've seen in Iraq, what we've seen in Iran. So, so I think the, 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 the role of the doctor is very much, um, uh, is an interesting one because it represents that node of understanding uh, how, how uh, society is dealing with this, specifically, as you said, middle class. Um, and then of course, how is that also, uh, reflecting in the forms of care, forms of uh, uh, response to to these uh, kind of uh, material, uh, physical, and the symbolic impacts of the sanctions. So the three points that you uh, highlight are, one is access to education material, which you kind of talked about a little bit, Orchidea, just now. Um, access to global economies of knowledge, um, international mobility and exchange. And then the third point is the modes of socialization and professionalization, uh, what you, what you uh, identify as ways of being and becoming a doctor. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of uh, take us or lead us through each of these points and uh, highlight what you've seen as a uh, kind of critical uh, finding in this work um, and, uh, and, 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 and how that, uh, that could help us in thinking about much, uh, thinking about different ways of understanding this impact on education. Tarajan, do you want to take the first one? And then I can talk about the professionalization, socialization. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, um, so, and what was really interesting is that these all things kind of came up naturally and co-currently as we were speaking, while, um, uh, while the, the discourse of um, resistance, isolation, hopelessness, modes of uh, improvising, learning by doing were present in all different uh, themes that I hope Orchida will explain. But maybe the clinical decision-making is the one that's e easiest to see. It's the most visible one. It's the one that most easily identifiable in terms of uh, what, what would be categorized, for instance, as direct impact. Um, uh, um, I, I spoke mostly to um, um, people who were in the educational stages of their training, and they all very much emphasize this, this experience of learning by doing and how having access to certain technology devices, medical technique will, will allow them to, to learn how to work with this. And if they lose that opportunity, uh, even if later on they come across those cases or have access to this, those technologies, then they don't know how to use it. So this sense of um, 
the lack of access will impact our education was very present in terms of, as I said, it's scan, different scanning techniques. Um, and, and that one is more visible when you're talking about different specialization, because as um, I Orchid briefly explained, the general education has um, um, it, it is not that much dependent at, at, at technology. But then there was also the issue of different softwares and, and techniques. And, um, um, and what um, what people what people do to still use the, their technologies, and at what point they give up using them, um, and uh, what what they what they attribute as causality. For instance, for a medic for a medical edu um, educator, knowing the knowing the cause of the absence of a device at a hospital, is it because the government hasn't tried its best to bring it? Is it because sanctions are preventing it? They're all present in that conversation. But the end result was that if I'm not able to learn it now, I'm not going to be able to use it. And then at the same time, there were stories of like how professors and doctors try to use alternative techniques to still cover that aspect when they can. In, in the hope that they could they would be able to use it is that sufficient unclear on the um, application stuff which i thought was very very interesting is that as, as orchida mentioned even though there were clear answers from an objective perspective application x is blocked by u.s sanction platform x is not providing access to iranians simply because of the risk of um, of uh, sanctions on the ground people don't necessarily know if they need to turn on their VPN to access it, if they need to buy it, because VPN works both for state censorship and for US sanctions. Um, so on that end, there's still the causality. But then um, what was really interesting to me is that a, a, a doctor, an OBGYN doctor explained that um, she had several apps on, on her phone that helped her uh, expedited her diagnosis. But at, at some point, paying for subscription of these apps um, was simply not worth it. Uh, the general economic deter deterioration of economic condition, um, the, the, the exchange rate, that was not something because at some point she came to the conclusion that even though she had access to all these ways to circumvent the, the sanctions, it wasn't worth it anymore to pay X amount of money um, to, to still use them. And then she's going to try to improvise. So even though we categorize the, these different three, three aspects and access um, um, of, of impact, what was really interesting is that these different layers of, um, of uh, modes of being were, were present in every three aspects. And I think Orchidee can, can explain more about the research and, and, um, and the sense of um, um, one's profession. Um, and I'm happy to, to compliment whatever she said. Thank you, Tarjan. Um, yeah, I think, it, it, um, as Tara mentioned, the clinical aspects are the more visible ones. And then if you want to focus on the invisible, so to speak, um, we were very, um, we were paying extra attention to uh, perceptions on the ground, to rumor, to hearsay, to, to uh, interpretations that people have. I mean, sometimes a software might actually be unavailable for other reasons. Um, and still people feel that it's because of censorship or because of sanctions. So those, those feelings are important because 
uh, over time, uh, the chronicity of these, this sense of frustration. And people would say, how many times do I try something before I give up? How many times do I try to, or the same goes with mobility. I mean, people, the, the, the restrictions on travel are in part because of, you know, um, political issues in the occurrence, in part because of the sanctions, but also in part because of decisions in the inside the country. So people bring all of that up and it's as if there is, um, there is, uh, it, it is such frustration uh, uh, waiting to, to come to surface when you ask a simple question um, like, you know, can you go to conferences or not? And I think this is important because this inner turmoil and a sense of um, being cut off um, has really long-term consequences. And, and it, it results in the corrosion of hope over time. And that has an impact on education directly because, so educators would tell you, for example, our top students um, used to be, you know, when I was in it, they would tell me that when I was in medical school, our top students, when they got to the internship stage, they were, they wanted to do everything on the ward. They wanted to be involved. They, they would um, compete to be, you know, to stand in on a surgery or something. Now, some of our, most of our top students by that stage are thinking about migration. So at that point, they're investing in a master's degree to, to strengthen their CV uh, and they're disengaged in the world. And as, a, as an educator, this really affects me because, you know, it, it, so that's, 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 I think, extremely important because in, in, it's the inner work that I think um, uh, cannot be traced in, in reports that's solely focused on uh, quantitative analysis or on, uh, or on uh, policy reports. And, and as Tara mentioned in the beginning, on, on the effects of exemptions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of workarounds as well, both in the clinical setting and in, in research. Uh, eventually people do submit articles to international journals, people do use the VPN, people do go to conferences, but the effort it takes and the number of times it doesn't work is what's not spoken about. And, and that's really important. And part of what I'm really interested in, in terms of um, uh, you know, medicine in general and, and pedagogy in general is this idea of learning by doing, which is part of the uh, medical um, uh, ethos in at least in in training in Iran and this doing involves a lot of workarounds involves a lot of um, uh, you know uh, know-how in terms of who to go to to get access to something that's not accessible but at the same time is linked to that sort of sense of demoralization and how much how much enthusiasm you see on the words and if you focus on the clinical part of the training as opposed to the theoretical part in the beginning uh, that has a very palpable impact when you talk to doctors thank you so much i mean i hear very uh, kind of familiar uh, stories uh, here uh, with with some of the experiences that i had also as a physician working in the sanctions in the 1990s in in baghdad mm -hmm. in one of the uh, in Iraq's uh, one of big, Iraq's biggest hospitals, a lot of the doctors were becoming uh, disenchanted with 
the 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 kind of the practice of medicine as a as also as a human as as, as a kind of a humanitarian work you know you're uh, because you know in, in the moment of sanctions when uh, distress hits uh, society the doctor's role becomes very highlighted as as you you have uh, kind of uh, nicely put it but then we see a different kind of reaction where doctors are more concerned about their cvs they're concerned more about uh, uh, getting the right experience to be able to leave and work in a in a different uh, uh, kind of system. So, so I think that is an an important demoralizing uh, factor that we see in, in in these moments of sanctions. And I think it also uh, raises very uh, interesting points about how medical training is shaping doctors in general. I mean, is medicine uh, as a as a as a kind of a as a humanitarian kind of field is responding to the ailments of society or is it is it a a field of status and getting becoming a doctor and opening your clinic and so i think there is a lot of interesting tensions that you you highlight in uh, in uh, in the work that speaks to to uh, to this ambivalence uh, to to what medicine means in the context of sanctions um, so, so having said that, I'm 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 also uh, curious to ask about something you really uh, uh, kind of touch upon in the in the paper, which is what you call the politics of scarcity. Um, there is a very interesting tension going on in the paper uh, around people attributing uh, some of these uh, lacks and some of these scarcities to the sanctions or uh, attributing them as you uh, uh, John, as you said to to the uh, uh, to the censorship or and I think this brings up a very important point uh, which is the relationship between medicine and the state um, the uh, so one of the things that at least in the politics of scarcity that I've kind of been uh, involved in or I've written a little bit uh, about uh, had to do a lot with how the Iraqi state performed its inability to respond uh, to the collapsing healthcare. So, so one of the things if, uh, people who maybe lived that period remember in the ninth, in the late 1990s and 97, um, uh, the Iraqi state organized these these parades of dead children. So, where they put these childrens on on uh, the the top of taxi cabs and paraded them in the street as a kind of a as a result as kind of claiming that these are the results of the sanctions and and of course you know as a doctor i we were seeing this we were seeing the the, the high numbers of deaths uh, in iraqi hospitals but it seems like there is something a little bit also different at work what what the iraqi government at that time did was to um, kind of perform this inability to govern to show that it's in, unable to save lives in 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 uh, in the in Iraq and of course this uh, metabolized and refracted a lot in the everyday practice of doctors who are kind of scrambling to deal with the lack of medications and the collapse of hospital sanitation, the high rates of infections that were happening. I mean, during the sanctions in Iraq, the infant mortality and maternal like doubled during these 10 years. 
So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how do you see this connection, uh, this tension that you kind of highlighted? And I know it's probably a very sensitive issue, but, but how do you uh, uh, conceptualize and comment on these tensions between the state, politics of scarcity, uh, and how the state is maybe using or uh, kind of um, posturing in relationship towards the sanctions, specifically in, in relationship to the medical and the healthcare uh, sector? I mean, I think you correctly uh, pointed out the tension, and I think the tension is real and the tension exists. There is a tension because, because there is, the tension exists in, in, and is reflected um, even at the policy level. Uh, when we're talking about sanctions, we're talking about uh, international measures, uh, punitive measures that, that target the core of state national security. And it's being understood as such. So doing research on these issues is actually extremely difficult um, because uh, it's very much correlated with the state, with the state national security and, 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 and the way they, they decide to, to project that. In Iran, a phrase that has been um, um, been promoted under sanction is resistance economy, um, and and I I would say at least for the past um, past twenty years, um, Iran has been in the resistance mood. It's it's being um, glorified, valued, promoted as a matter of state doctrine, um, that we are resisting this pressure because it's unjust. It's it's um, and 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 you. And people who buy into this doctrine are being rewarded for that. Um, there's some real, uh, as, as we point out, there's some real resistance that is being shaped as a result of um, um, the results of the scarcity by people, by doctors, by policymakers. A lot of the policymakers is response to this reality that exists. But then at the same time, because it's a matter of national security, doing research on this issue is also complicated. With my Human Rights Watch hat, when I go to the Iranian government and ask for data um, to study the impact, I'm shut down because, uh, because showing weakness is, is, is showing the effectiveness of sanction. And at the time that the state hasn't decided, for instance, to negotiate with the international community over those sanctions, that can hurt them. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, again, the, the, there is the, there is a there is a recognition that these are unjust. Therefore, um, there is support for saying they're unjust, but allowing researchers to independently study and form their own narrative on these issues is not happening. And, and I think this also points to uh, what we've been discussing in terms of the, the complexity of the nature that the internal reality of the repressive state, um, it cannot be separated. Uh, from the sanctions. And again, I'm speaking uh, with my policy hat here. I think it's uh, the making and unmaking of sanctions consider these realities at the same time. They might not be formulated in the text, but they're, they're part of the, the calculation and equation. Um, but just to summarize, I think in the in, uh, Iran is still in the, 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 the formal state discourse is still resistance in that sense. Um, Resistance can be um, rewarded, can be exaggerated, can be used to uh, mask problems, 
But I think sanctions are also have been the scapegoat for <laughs> incompetency. Um, and, and you can see that as manifesting itself in the issue of um, a government response to COVID crisis, for instance, right now. Um, and I stop here and let Orkida explain. Um, yeah, I, I'll just follow up on that to, to um, I'm so glad you brought up the issue of the state um, because I, I wanted to kind of um, come back to the example of uh, the pandemic and how the sanctions have been used to justify some of the extremely um, explicit uh, uh, you know, uh, incompetence instances that, um, you know, for example, late response delays, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people blame the response on the pandemic on, um, again, shortages, this issue of shortages. Whereas, you know, and for the pandemic, there is no medication, there is no drug, there is nothing that, you know, it, it, it wasn't an issue of shortages. It was an issue of, you know, um, delay in uh, uh, distributing information or, or uh, correct policies. So this idea of, um, I wanted to just point out a few things. One is that this securitization of almost everything also in, you know, comes into this question of sanctions. The fact that um, we haven't been able to name our colleagues who we've interviewed in the acknowledgement of our piece is quite telling because we're not sure if they, that this might cause them problem and, and, and trouble. And this is because speaking about sanctions um, at different points can be an issue. And sometimes it cannot be an issue depending on how you mobilize it. So in terms of the, that relationship with the state, I think that's, that's extremely important to remember that part of this politics of scarcity, as you mentioned, is, is also rooted in other crises. One is the crisis of legitimacy that's already ongoing and issues like sanction just get superimposed on them. Uh, there is a very, very low level of public trust in, in uh, policymaking. There is also a question of this, uh, of, an, of a crisis of expertise, um, because there is a general sense that we are now four decades after the revolution, therefore four decades after the cultural revolution, a lot of the experts, uh, quote unquote, scientists, experts who knew what they were doing are pushed away from the realm of policy. And people are extremely aware of this. So people who are making policies are not people who should be making policy. That's, these are perceptions that shape people's, uh, and, and it takes me back to the sense of demoralization that you talked about, Omar. Uh, society in general is an, at an impasse because of these um, underlying crises. And, and one of our, in a way, our key finding, um, one of our key findings was it's impossible to pinpoint which one of these issues is the result of the sanctions or, because then again, bear in mind that people immediately also remind you in interviews that um, why are we under sanctions? And then they take you back to the question of, well, it's the, uh, depending on which ideological leaning they're coming from, but some, you know, this mention is also important that we are under sanctions for a reason. It's unjust, but at the same time, doesn't justify what the you know the regime is doing. So this this kind of be, being caught between a rock and a hard place is a theme, running theme, uh, in in a lot of these discussions. Um, I think I, I just want to um, make a final point about this idea of. Um, uh, it, it, it's kind of related to the work I'm doing now with, in relation to COVID uh, and sanctions come into it because we're talking about something that can be called a, a, a landscape of internalized 
uh, a discourse of death and disintegration and debility. That's, you know, the notion of death has become part of everyday life, disintegration, the fact that right now, for example, there, there, with electricity shutdowns over the past week uh, in major cities, um, I don't want to go into the reasons for that, but the perception again of people is there is incompetence, there is also sanctions, there is also, and so it's it's um, it's not like science that we can do an experiment and put our finger on you know a monocausal issue here. Thank you. Uh, I think I think the point that you make that hits home very clearly is how this this impact on education, on the formation of expertise, on the medical system has a much broader impact on society and the way society kind of even interprets uh, and understands these uh, these uh, uh, these kind of breakdowns. You know, I mean, this is something I've always been kind of interested in: is how breakdown are uh, lived, how breakdowns are experienced, and what do they kind of, um, what do they uh, produce in terms of like more, more long-term uh, effects. Um, so one, one, one thing maybe I want to kind of uh, bring up. So one of the ways to, when, when comparing uh, when I was, let's say, doing my work on Iraq, I, I, the kind of the the clear example for me was always Cuba, uh, was always the the how Cuba experienced the 1990s, uh, what you know they called the El Periodo Especial, uh, which was basically the special period of the 1990s sanctions um, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Cuba kind of was left on its own dealing with a lot of the economic uh, scarcities and the impact of that. And I think kind of the work of uh, Sean Bretherton on that, that period and the role on the kind of his book, Revolutionary Medicine, highlights some of these really interesting uh, factors. So in, in, in one of the things that I found uh, are to be contrasted, uh, at least with the experience of Iraq, is that Iraq went through this massive destruction of infrastructure and um, prior to the sanctions. So, so not only that you're not able to kind of maintain a system, but you're not able even to reconstruct it uh, after its collapse. Um, so, so, uh, so in that kind of spirit of comparison, I feel one of the things that the Cuban model uh, of sanctions has shown, at least from the healthcare angle, is the, the regional role of, Q, of Cuban doctors uh, across uh, different kind of landscapes, you know, uh, their role in crisis. Uh, some of these doctors are sent to crisis areas to respond. Their role in a in a much broader kind of idea of education um, across uh, across the uh, 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 South America and uh, Latin America in general. Um, given Iran's uh, regional role and its kind of long investment, as you said, in this uh, politics of resistance uh, from Lebanon to Iraq to other uh, to Yemen to other parts of the of the region, it, has there been a kind of a regional role for doctors? Has there been a kind of a, I mean I mean the global the glo as you as you uh, well ar articulate the global connections have been severed um, or at least more or less severed. What about are there different avenues? Is this kind of pushing the uh, the the uh, the medical doctors in Iran to think on a different scale, to different to think about a, on a regional level, especially given the kind of the very 
deep and close connections with Iraq. Uh, there has been a lot of Iraqis who go to Iran for medical treatment, for example. So, so these are processes that have been ongoing. So I wonder if you can kind of touch a little bit on that and if that kind of has any uh, interesting, um, uh, are there any interesting insights from thinking about Iran's medical system within a kind of a more regional perspective? Um, yeah, I can say something about that. Um, uh, well, it, the question of Cuba is actually really interesting because in the early 1980s, uh, the Iranian public health care, public health system was extremely inspired by Cuba. And a lot of the successful public health policies of the 1980s in Iran, including family planning and, you know, the eradication of polio, things like that were very much inspired by that, by that um, uh, model. Um, and it was very explicit also. Four, four decades later, something has changed. One is that there are intersecting crises that have intervened. Um, this, the same can be said about war medicine, because during the 80s, as you know, like medicine in some areas was damaged and in some areas flourished because there was this sense of sufficiency and not having to send patients abroad for treatment. So these are, you know, the progresses that have been made, but then some of them are undone because A, infrastructure has worn out and hasn't been rep, you know, reproduced or replicated or repaired. And, and of course, the other crises that I mentioned are also there. But what has happened is um, something that's happened in the past 10 years is that we also now have international campus uh, campuses on medical on, on, uh, in Iran. Um, and the, one of the key interventions was that medical school, the Tehran Medical School, uh, Tehran University Medical School is now um, having an international campus and has, as you said, relied on regional allies. So students from uh, Iraq, from Syria, from Kashmir, from India, and from the Gulf um, are coming to now. This Part of this is um, um, income and part of this is uh, about you know, um, diplomacy, but a huge part of it is about soft power because Iran is now training uh, medical doctors who will then go back and become part of the medical establishment. In fact, there is um, uh, one of my, my um, interlocutors has, has told me that there is now a new campus being built in Abadan specifically for Basra, for links with Basra. So there is there is a, a longer term vision in terms of, you know, um, regional uh, uh, supremacy, if you will. Um, the, now, the question of the, how the nitty gritty of that works, what the quality of education is, because the same um, professors who are teaching there also tell me, well, the criteria for accepting these students is very different. They're, so they're very skeptical of the quality, but it doesn't matter because the point is not quality medical education. The point is, um, you know, regional uh, links and marks uh, to be made. So that's an, ex, you know, that's an extremely important sort of side effect byproduct of this situation. Okay, well, we'll go into audience Q&A for a little bit. Um, so one of the audience members who is also a trained physician in Iran, she states, um, is wondering uh, or is posing the question that from her perspective, the state has not invested in the medical field uh, in over the past decades and, um, and that what doctors or the medical field in Iran are experiencing is that kind of uh, you know, lack of investment, whereas the priorities of the state have been elsewhere. And so she, she was wondering about that aspect of it from the both of you. 
Um, should I go or do you want to? Um, well, that's more of a comment than a question. I think um, it's, um, it is, you know, there is truth in that. Um, as I said, uh, infrastructure is a huge problem and it, we all know that that's one of the uh, unfortunate legacies of sanctions is that, you know, the, so one of the points about infrastructure and death right now, I mean, all of these um, things that we're hearing about people dying, for example, um, patient, COVID patients are dying in, in some countries, um, including Iran, Nepal, India, because of shortages in oxygen supply or suddenly this hospital's electricity being shut down, not because of the virus. So the patient is in an ICU, is getting treatment, but then suddenly the infrastructure collapses on you. So that's something that's been commented on, that's been uh, known, and it's in a way it's common knowledge also in Iran. The investment, um, a, a lot of, the, I think that it, the question of investment is important because uh, it, it's not driven always uh, by um, scientific standards or aspirations. Um, sometimes it's driven by geopolitical interests. That being said, Iran, the, the, the Iranian establishment has extremely high um, um, ambitions technoscientifically and has always had high ambitions technoscientifically. So there, this, this sense of self-sufficiency in the region in terms of technosciences. And we see that in stem cell research, we see that in, um, you know, Iran was one of the first places where IVF became possible, that kind of thing in, in, you know, in the region and among the Muslim nations. Um, that's a rhetoric that's very important to the identity of the Islamic Republic. And so you see both sides of this. Um, it, maybe in some ways it could be said that a lot of these efforts are uncoordinated or seem uncoordinated because something is happening in one packet and in another packet is being undone. Uh, but these are competing interests, competing um, uh, agendas and competing interests in, um, in both directions. Tara, did you want to add to that or should I go to the next question? Um, no, I think Orkida put it very well. Um, and uh, what I would add to it is that I think policymaking um, in Iran um, has been um, basically categorized by uh, what is commonly referred to as the current critical moment. Like there's this sense of urgency, this sense of honestability, this sense of um, living in the moment and having to do policy making, and that doesn't necessarily. And, and I think what Orkide correctly pointed out is the compete. What seems to be competing interests uh, of different groups: the medical community, the medical educator community, um, the state security apparatus, understanding of of the role of uh, medical education in the society and the broader politics of it. Um, so I think um, resources and investment is definitely. Um, a very relevant factor to be taken into account, but I think it will come back to the, the complexity and the impossibility of pinpointing pinpoint, the monocausal um, issue. And it's very interesting that even when people bring up the, the um, let's say sanction or, or resources as the first element within five to 10 minutes of the conversation that the next one comes up. Um, so it's, it's what you choose to go with, depending on how your life is being impacted is also important, I think. Actually, I'd like to add something here. That was an excellent point. This short-termism that, uh, that Tara um, uh, talks about is, is really key here because I'd like to uh, 
sort of historicize this um, issue of competing agendas because competing agendas if yeah, 15 years ago, it would it, it was possible for me to say, well, there are competing agendas, there are fractions um, within the establishment that are techno-scientifically minded or technocrats. And, and that is changing and changing and changing because at this point, um, the level of um, uh, expertise and excellence has, has decreased and the level of um, you know, um, cronyism and, and corruption has increased. And that has a long-term effect. So competing agendas are not, not the same as what they were 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And it's important to remember that these competing agendas also change. And at, you know, currently, it seems that um, uh, one set of agendas are way more powerful than the other set, unfortunately. Thank you both for that. So there are a couple of folks who are asking, um, and I'm just gonna try to summarize their questions. They're wondering if your research identified any solutions that could be applied, either internally or involving the international community. Um, so in essence, um, what are there, um, sort of solutions policy oriented most specifically around the issues that you all are identifying in your research and in your paper. I can go ahead. I think uh, we're ending this paper by posing questions um, and there's a reason for that. And our intention, I think the, the, the most important takeaway is to consider that these different aspects in talking about sanctions. I come from the policy community, so I'm very much used to um, wanting to have a quick fix. But I think our research is an invitation to understanding the complex impact that um, these web of policy measures that are being imposed far away from, from Iran are having on the everyday life of Iranians. Um, so as much as I would like to give you one, two, three in terms of this is how to fix the system, I think the first point is to understand uh, the complex nature of it. And, and naturally, if I want to take it one step further, is that when imposing those policies and when considering the impact, appreciate the complexity of this issue. Um, under uh, the previous administration in the US, the question became solely the blame game uh, by um, the Iranian government and the US government in terms of who is at fault here. And the, 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 the problem was completely diminished to um, proving the other side wrong. Um, and that's exactly what, um, what can dehumanize and the experience of Iranians who are living, again, as we pointed out, with this different multi-fact, um, integrated multi-factor setting. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think that's a problem. Understanding the complicated nature of it will also allow us to understand the harm better, I think. I mean, as a non-policy person, I, I, uh, I unfortunately, I am not able to offer any uh, fast solutions, but I think that the idea of um, when we're discussing sanctions or wars or invasions or things like that, uh, let's talk about the complexity, but also consequences. And the consequences are, uh, are happening to people who have names and families and faces and they're real. And so 
uh, it's a very obvious point, but it seems that it needs to be reiterated. And I think the 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 um, the other aspect of it is to be aware that you are already dealing with a uh, you know in some in some sense an immunocompromised body and a, 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 a situation where um, already things are in uh, in a state of disarray and so imposing sanctions is um, usually as we can see here only affecting ordinary citizens including doctors but affecting doctors also in, affects in ordinary citizens in, in, in a loopy way, um, but not the people that the sanctions are, target, are aiming or claiming to target. So um, that wasn't a solution, sorry. No, that's great. Um, the, we have another question from an audience member who wants to know, has the US government taken any action to ameliorate the situation, I think around medicine in Iran, especially with regards to COVID-19? I'm assuming that question is for me. Uh, so um, the reality is that the, the sanction regime has not changed um, between um, the previous administration and current administration. They're still in place. Um, uh, the US did take certain actions um, in the aftermath of COVID crisis to um, clarify the um, existence of hum humanitarian exemptions, but certain challenges that existed pre-COVID um, have persisted. Uh, for instance, in, in uh, questions related to Iran's access to uh, funding sources abroad for purchasing vaccine um, and use of COVAX mechanism, a WHO established um, um, initiative for accessing vaccines. Um, um, so that's the short answer. Um, but um, again, I want to bring back the conversation as um, an invitation to understanding the complexity of the impact, the long and medium term impact, and the fact that with my policy hat, I advocate for quick fixes. But I think at some point we need to pause and, and acknowledge that the, the, the situation is more complex and speaking solely as a matter of policy um, impact, uh, we are, um, we're pretending that this broader context doesn't exist. And I actually find it hard to believe that the people who are very competent in policy crafting are not aware of the, um, or they take a moment, they cannot appreciate the complexity of the, the situation. So I'm going to take my prerogative as, as um, the host of the meeting to ask a last question. Um, and I want to ask it of the three of you. Um, so Omar, in your book, you kind of invite us and challenge us to think of new conceptual and methodological tools to study the Middle East um, under all of these decades of sanctions, whether by the UN or the United States or different sort of uh, um, entities and the especially at you know the further that we go along, uh, the United States is really using sanctions as one of its primary foreign policy tools as a tool of statecraft, um, increasingly across the Middle East but also across the world. Um, and you know, 
taking advantage of the fact that you guys are looking at different locales within the Middle East and can talk about this comparatively. If we look now at not only Iran, but Syria, Lebanon, um, certain uh, aspects of Yemen, we're, we're looking at situations, Palestine and Gaza, we're looking at situations of embargoes, situations of blockades, situations of heavy, heavy sanctions, situations of actual armed conflict and wars. Um, so how, you know, as social scientists and researchers, how do we uh, take your invitation seriously, Omar, and moving forward? And, and how are we thinking, Orkida and Tata, in the types of research that we're doing now about um, methodologically and conceptually taking all of these different forms of conflicts. And as you were saying, Tata, not looking for quick solutions, but really understanding the complexity of, uh, of everything that folks are, are experiencing on the ground, um, both to understand what's going on in all of these dynamics, but also, and Omar, this was something I, I really hang on to a lot from your book, is uh, the discourses of state failure that are almost endemic to sanctions regimes. So sanctions regimes both induce a form of state failure, but also create discourses of state failure that kind of are like a feedback loop, right? So whether state failure is actually happening in certain sectors or not, it doesn't actually matter because after a while, it's the discourse of it that, that takes over. Um, so that was a very long sort of question and you guys can take it in any direction, but I would just love to hear you all um, as you riff on that. I'll, I'll go first so I can leave the last uh, uh, few words to uh, our uh, to Orchid and Tara. Uh, so, so thanks, uh, Nargis, for this uh, question. Uh, so, one of the things that I've been trying to really uh, examine uh, how these interventions, these interventions, first kind of create, as you said, they create this this ecology of state failure. So, so not to only think about these failures as like, oh, we can't just do this and we cannot do that, but actually looking at it as a biosocial process, both the biological milieu and the environmental milieu in many of these uh, countries under uh, these uh, problems have been also changing. So, so we are not just uh, dealing with um, lack of, of material, but we're also dealing with transformations that are happening in the environment, uh, in, uh, in hospitals and the clinics. So one of the things that I've kind of tried to be, have been emphasizing in, is the, for example, the, the impact of these long-term interventions like the, like, like, uh, military, uh, bomb bombardment and sanctions on the rise of uh, multi-drug resistance bacteria and how that eventually creates more stress on the system. So, so for, in, for me, some of the, the key points is, is looking at what I have called the undoing of the body politic, what we've been seeing uh, across the region. Uh, you know, as social scientists are obsessed with looking at questions of biopolitics, like governing this, governing that, but 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 what about the ungoverning? What what about the ungovernability of things? How do these things manifest in these moments of the undoing of the state? And I, I think that is something we've been seeing very clearly in the Iraq case, in the Syria case, in Lebanon, in many countries, and of course in Gaza also, the whole idea of bombing 
or, or imposing sanctions is a form of uh, challenging or undoing of the body politic. Is a, is a, is, that's the kind of the idea. So, so that's one point that I, I think is very uh, important to highlight that we, what we are seeing is not just punishing of regimes, but we are looking at this undoing of infrastructures uh, of everyday life. Uh, and, this, and, and the state is not just the regime. Uh, the state is is uh, is the, its institutions its doctors its engineers its uh, teachers uh, its uh, spaces so the idea that the state uh, and the population are really very much entangled with each other we cannot really separate the population uh, health or life or experience from the kind of the experience of what the state is and how the state functions so so for me this is uh, one of the uh, central ways that i um, try to look at basically and documenting what is happening under these like how can we how can we explore and articulate these um, these unmakings as a form of life? Uh, how can we e e explore everyday life under these kind of conditions? So this is one aspect. The second aspect here for me is to document, is the documentation of these experiences. When I was interviewing a lot of doctors, they were ashamed that we're, they were working under the sanctions. They were ashamed that they were working under places that they that had lack of technology. They were always comparing, let's say, oh, I'm in Britain, all the things are available here, nothing is available. So they looked down at that, that experience. What I think is very critical for us as social scientists, specifically as uh, people who do history of medicine, history of science, is to actually begin to document the improvised, the, the, the kind of practices emerging in these settings, because they also comment on ways of understanding medicine uh, as such, as a, as a kind of a broader uh, a field that is uh, practiced in very different ways, you know? So the way we think about medicine um, as a universal thing is not really true, is not really true because medicine is a kind of locally uh, uh, experienced uh, and, and, and the way we see uh, how doctors and educators are responding to this is very much worth of documenting because it kind of gives us also very deeper insight uh, onto, um, uh, onto this kind of connection between medicine and society and the understanding of, a med of medicine as a situated field, not just as a kind of a universal thing that is, you know, either it's lacking or it's present, but as something that is responding constantly to um, uh, empirical uh, crises and issues that are happening in the everyday. Shall I go next? Um, I, before I say anything, I want to say I'm so um, grateful again to have Omar in this conversation. I mean, over the years, I've learned so much from him. And his friendship is extremely valuable to me. But today, the conversation, this comparative angle is extremely helpful. And, and I think, Nagas, back to your question about the, the comparative angle, basically, I think what, what is important is to be very clear about uh, points of convergence and divergence, because different because medicine has a local life in different settings. It is a, it is a global phenomenon, but it, it has its own global uh, local life. And so, for example, the discourse of state failure uh, that uh, is uh, is is perpetuated in this sense 
it's important to also remember that different states, and, and I use the term states then in the way that Omar um, explained, um, are a bit are different in their strategic use of this, these situations. For example, the, the, the discourse of failure can be produced and reproduced by sanctions. You're absolutely right. But it, but it can also sanctions can also be used to mask states of failure that are caused by other things. And I think that's extremely important because in a lot of uh, in a lot of bipolar discussions, especially with Iran, uh, uh, this can get lost. This this nuance can get lost. Um, that we have as in going back to the information and knowledge coming from the lived experience of people who are practicing in that context every day and over time that's extremely important and the second point i wanted to make was um, um hello the second point i wanted to make was in 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 some uh, which we didn't discuss is this question of sanctions is ex is is also an extremely sensitive representational issue i'm glad you raised the question of shame uh, omar because um, sometimes that's the reaction but sometimes the reaction is the opposite because a lot of uh, times uh, as a result of these these restrictions and and state of lack or or uh, whatever there are emerging not only practices but also performativities um, ways of uh, you know claims so a lot of techno scientific claims for example come out of iran that then don't really deliver um, a lot of great science come out of iran of course but sometimes we see a lot of rhetoric also coming not from science really but from the establishment and so we have to be very careful about this representational aspect and the psychology of how people perceive themselves under regimes of sanction and, and, and on the global stage. And in the, in the report, we've touched on this issue of mobility and international relations, the sense of isolation. It's not just about isolation, it's also about how, um, how one is represented on the global um, scientific stage. Um, uh, so I, I, I think I'll finish with that. And thank you, Omar, for your comments. Yeah, and I'll go um, last. Um, as a non-medical expert, it was, it was such an honor and pleasure to work with Orkide on this. And it's been such an honor to be on, on a panel with you, Omar. Um, as I said, coming from the non-technical background, uh, my interest in approaching the question is to um, basically appreciate the complexity and echo the point. Um, when we're defining intervention, what we mean by intervention is a, is a response to quote unquote crisis, a crisis that's unfolding an intervention that's done on the part of the state in this context, the US. Um, so, so I think going back to the, to the question of why are we even interested in this? What are we trying to It always comes down to, we, we need to respond to something. We need to respond in, in it, um, an episode of um, a lived experience or a story at this moment simply because it's in our face and once it disappears we can pretend it doesn't exist until it comes back again it's, as is a very good example it's only in our face when it's being bombed and the reality of lived experience of people in Gaza doesn't go away same 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 story with the Middle East so I think we need to take a step back when we are talking about the, the state and the intervention the states are taking. Is that why? Why are you even interested in this story? What, what is your what? What is the reason you are looking at this? And I think pushing back on on this um, notion of need to act and the fact that that there, there is an act that can fix this. 
that there's a fix. We just need to we just need to tighten the language. We just need to um, um, make the bill more accurate. We just need to do our impact study and reflect it accurately, and then the problem is fixed. I think we need to take a step back to even define what we consider a problem, define what we consider intervention, and and basically the motive of even being interested in, in the lived experience of people in this area, the geographical area that we we're talking about. Um, but again, I think we can talk about this for hours, but it's been such, um, such a rewarding experience for me um, to talk about this uh, ongoing research with, with Omar Orkide and you, Nargisjan. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure and thank you. Thank you, Nargis, and thank you, Saiz, and uh, the entire Rethinking Iran initiative for this opportunity. And thank you, Omar, uh, for your wonderful um, comments and very helpful, you know, food for thought. We have to go back and think a lot about them now. Um, and I want to thank Tara, who's been, uh, it's been a delight to work with her. Thank you all so much, really, for this conversation. Um, and uh, sorry to keep everyone 10 minutes over, but I think it was worth it to hear those last remarks from everyone on here. Um, so as my daughter's reminding me, it's time to go. But uh, just a quick note that next um, Wednesday, we have our last event in our sanctions series, which will be on politics and arts in Iran. Uh, it'll be next Wednesday at the same time as this, uh, 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern time. We hope to see you there. Thanks so much again to Omar, uh, Orkide, and Tara for this wonderful session. Thank you all. Thank you.